Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have a special guest host, Lena Tamsito. She uh, appeared on our podcast a while back, interviewed by Stephanie Malaki. She was our first CDSM postdoc, and she works on a variety of areas. So I'll let her introduce herself since she has a very interesting background. Thank you, Steve, for the kind introduction. I am currently an assistant professor at uh, McMaster in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences. So I have a number of research areas. First and foremost, I'm in an occupational therapist. So I'm coming to this from a very different and interesting lens. So I'm, I'm curious to see how our conversation goes today. I'm an occupational therapist. I've been practicing for about over 20 years in the area of family and adolescent mental health and working with uh, healthcare providers to, to develop their skills and their, their knowledge base. So after practicing for some time, I returned to uh, do my PhD at Queen's where I worked with Dr. Heidi Cram and we did work in supporting military and veteran families. So that's how I got into to the area of military personnel. And since then, I've done a variety of work. I've worked well with uh, Dr. Stephanie Balmacki working on uh, developing a mentorship program. Um, and now I am at uh, McMaster working with Dr. Margaret McKinnon in the area of uh, military sexual trauma and other types of trauma experienced by military personnel. On that last thing, the work with uh, Margaret is the sexual misconduct network that the MINDS, that is the D&D's uh-huh. uh, outreach program, has has funded for, for three years. Can uh-huh. you tell us a little bit about what that research endeavor, that the Collaborative Network has been doing? Yeah, we've been doing um, quite a bit, actually. There's a couple of arms to that funding. The the one arm is a really emphasizes the, the network component of the network grant, where we're reaching out to stakeholders, people with lived experiences, you know, government organizations to talk about military sexual trauma, bringing it to the forefront and, you know, problem solving. And, and understanding where people's positions are and what can be done to move forward. Um, we know that there's lots being done in the military currently. I mean, it's it's a really important issue that's finally getting its you know time in the spotlight. And so we're as McMaster grant holders, we're meeting with stakeholders and, and other folks to really provide that support. You know, what is it that we can do? Who can we connect you with to, to move this really important issue forward? So that's one large piece of the, the network grant. The other piece is around research. And we're really looking at what the gaps are in understanding uh, military sexual trauma in Canada. Um, Specifically, there's been very little research that's been done. The research that has been done has been fantastic, but we know that there are, there's a lot more that needs to be done, not just with, you know, the majority population within the military, but looking at smaller populations that seem to be, that tend to be overlooked, you know, like the LGBTQ plus um, population, men who have survived military sexual trauma, Indigenous and, and racialized groups as well. So these are, you know, gaps in the research that we've identified. We know that people from these communities have experienced it as well, but we just don't know what that looks like within the Canadian context. You know, those are some of the main activities. We also, you know, uh, support, you know, up and coming researchers, early career researchers, and provide them with, you know, opportunities to in- engage in, in research and networking. And, you know, for Grant, that's been, you know, we're just starting our second year. We've been quite busy. I, I'm curious because the entire conversation about Canadian Armed Forces culture change, mm-hmm. I, I, I would have to say that most of it is about trying to get the people to engage in less, well, bad behavior, try to have fewer perpetrators and have the perpetrators stop. And I'm not sure how much of the emphasis has been on dealing with the consequences that is dealing with sexual trauma. And so when you hear about all the stuff about culture change and what the CAF has to do, are you seeing the focus the way I am? What would you want to see in culture change in the CAF? And is the conversation today kind of missing the target or, or do you feel pretty good about where it's going? Steve, I don't think we have 
enough time in the podcast to talk about everything that needs to be done. I, you know, culture, I think the effort is really there and I think they're trying really hard, but I think there's so many layers that need to mm -hmm. be dissected and examined. I, I don't think it's just, you know, nailing the people who have, have done wrong. It's not, you know, just supporting survivors. It's, you know, what is it about the CAF or the environment now in the past that has allowed this to happen? Mm -hmm. And how can that, how can that be fixed without compromising the inherent structure of the military that's needed, right? So, I mean, it's, it's much more complicated than, you know, just striking up another committee and, you know, mm -hmm. doing another report and having recommendations that sort of sit there on the shelf. It's, you know, why do they sit there on the shelf for mm -hmm. starters? So I think, you know, it's a, it's a really big question. I, I, you know, I'd love to just commit hours just sitting there and bringing people together and talking about it because I think it's, it's more than just what's happening right now. I mean, it's, it's a great effort. It's a great mm -hmm. start, but as someone from a racialized community who functions in a environment that where I am the minority, it's so layered. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I look at it, I tend to see it as we need us not just change the culture, but change the institution. So you made reference to, you know, you got it. We got to keep the military be functional and effective. And so we don't want to destroy the institution, but we need to figure out ways to make it better for the people inside of it, which ultimately will lead to better effectiveness. But when people talk about culture, I tend to think of that as changing sort of the norms, the attitudes. And I'm always an institutionalist. I want to change promotion. I want to change selection. I want to change how things are rewarded and penalized, which will then change the culture, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I come from, you know, a, a health perspective of culture. So it's, it's about sort of the norms, the expectations, but also sort of, you know, how people view things. Right. Mm -hmm. So if there's, you know, what, well, how do people view power? How do people view health? And how do people view, you know, interactions and things like that? So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's definitely what you're, what you're talking about in terms of like, it's changed the institution. But, you know, to me, it's, you know, the language that gets used, the people who are involved, I think, I don't know how we do how we change so many of these characteristics that are inherent to operational readiness without, do you know what I mean? Like to, mm -hmm. to how you, you change one without changing the other. And I don't have an answer. I just know that it's much more layered and, and much more complex than what is being addressed at this time. Well, speaking about layered and complex, a couple of weeks ago, there was the report that dropped right before our last podcast, but I'm curious to get your mm -hmm. perspective on it, which is the Systemic Racism Advisory Group to the minister came out with their report. And we just sort of scratched the surface last time. I'm, I'm curious as to what you have to say about it. it. Covered a lot of issues in not that long of a report. And I'm, I'm curious as to, as to your take on it. So I'm going to share a little story in, mm -hmm. in light of this. And it sort of highlights, you know, that it's not just a problem within CAF in terms of representation, but also in the world that you and I reside in, which is, you know, the, the world of academics and research. So I got a, a media request shortly after the report comes out, which, you know, is not unusual. You know, I've, I've had, I've been involved in, in activities like this before, but what was interesting, it was, you know, I, my research area is not racism and discrimination in institutions. I'm not a scholar in the area, but what struck me in the request is that the request was for, for me to appear on television because they were looking for researchers, you know, such as myself, someone mm -hmm. who's like you, not sure what that meant, if it was because I'm a, a racialized woman, or is it because I'm a researcher, but you know, any one who does any Google searches on who I am and the work that I do clearly sees that I, I, I am not a, a, a race and ethnicity scholar. So, you know, in light that sort of really highlighted that it's not just, you know, within the military where we're struggling for representation, it's broader in, you know, the work that we do to examine race and discrimination in the armed forces. You know, going back to the, the report specifically, you know, when something that really struck me is the comment made that it's not that the CAF and D&D can do something about discrimination, mm -hmm. right? It, it, they, ha they have reports, they have people who can do it. So it's entirely up to them to do it, right? They didn't need this advisory panel to tell them what needed to be done because they've already known for the past 20 years. The executive summary lists, you know, a, a whole host of documents that have highlighted the need to, to make changes to, you know, increase diversity and, and whatnot. But here we are again, facing another report that sort of states the obvious. So, I mean, the, the recommendations I think are pretty concrete and they were short, they were brief and to the point of the advisory committee, 
right? You don't need us to tell you what you need to do. You already know what you need to do. So just, just do it. Well, the question, you're asking the right question. You're focused on the thing, which is there's a social science of what is wrong. And then there's a, the social science and, and, and the knowledge of why is why are the lessons not implemented? I mean, one of the striking things about the report was the identification, how little follow-up there's been, that there haven't been checklists, yes. there haven't been efforts to look back and figure out, okay, we had these recommendations, how many of them were actually implemented? And you need to have uh, metrics, whether this is input, output or outcome metrics, you need to have some kind of metrics about what you're doing. And then being able, then going back and seeing whether you met the goals or not. And that was clearly not happening. And right now the metric is, well, what percentage of the military is women? What percentage of the military is indigenous and all the rest? And those are really, really broad metrics. That doesn't really tell you whether any the specific efforts are moving the needle because there's all other kinds of things that are going on that- Absolutely. Right. right. When we're know. talking about, like what you're saying about culture change, right? So just because you have representation, now does that mean that the culture of the CAF and DND has shifted to, you know, welcome people of varying backgrounds and experiences? Or does it mean that you're bringing these folks in and sort of making them conform into an already dysfunctional culture? So you're right. There needs to be metrics in place to measure quote unquote changes if they've been made. I mean, I think it's really important, the statistics, right? So we can mm -hmm. sort of see where, where we're at, but does it really measure what it's supposed to measure, which is ultimately culture change and, you know, and how it impacts the, the effectiveness of the military. Yeah. I, th I, th I think that, you know, when I get a review from a journal, the first thing I do is I list all the all the complaints about what was wrong with uh, the draft. And then I try to figure out how I can address each one of them. And then uh -huh. before I submit the article again, I write up a letter explaining each piece of how I responded to it. So that way I can convince the reviewers that I take right. their, their advice seriously and maybe also made the article better. And it would seem to me that before you launch into a review, which is what the politicians always do, because that shows that they, they care, they're serious. Yeah. Is look at the last review, check off what has made, where this, has progress been made, what efforts have gone well, what efforts have gone poorly. And the irony of this is that the military, more than anybody else, loves a lessons learned exercise. And so was there a lessons learned exercise done at the end, the end of Operation Honor? I don't know. I'm not, I, I haven't I really followed that closely, but I'm hoping that they end up being much more systematic about that because yes, discrimination is hard to eradicate. Racism is hard to er eradicate. All these dynamics are not just in the military, than our society, mm -hmm. but the military has a whole lot more power over the people in it than society does over the people in society. And so they, they actually should be held to a higher standard, particularly since we're giving these people guns and stuff. And so it seemed to me that they, we would need to have to figure out stuff. And I think your work of mentoring fits into this, which is how do you get people to learn the norms, how to get people to learn what is successful, appropriate stuff. Now, your postdoc year you spent on mentoring, and mm -hmm. it would seem to me that there's two parts to mentoring uh, that are relevant here. One is we need to have better mentors, the right mentors, because we had mentors in the military. They're just mentoring men to tell them that, that they can get away with stuff. So we need to have better mentors, but we also need to figure out how to do the mentoring in ways that is more successful. So in your work, did you learn how to either pick better mentors or how to advise mentors to communicate better? I think mentorship, I mean, it's, it's inherent in so many institutions in the military is definitely one that has like grasped onto mentorship. The problem with, from my understanding about how mentorship is being taught in the military is that it's sort of wrapped up in leadership. So it's, you know, mentors who also are within your chain of command who provides that mentorship, which is inherent to mentorship, like completely, you know, incorrect and, and can be quite uh, destructive. You know, what I've learned in my work with mentorship was looking at you know, what makes a good mentor? And these are people who want to help that, you know, these are people who are quote unquote progressive and want to move the needle forward. So, I mean, these are the people who are the great mentors. They're the ones who see the potential in diversity, see the potential in people reaching out. And they're the ones who are also open to learning themselves. I think the mentorship is the way it's been traditionally used in the military is very much sort of top down, you know, here's your, your career path. This is what you need to do. Here are the checkboxes. 
go through it and then come back to me. The mentors that I've spoken to in the work that I've done really sees mentorship as bi-directional, right? Where you have a mentor who, you know, will provide the guidance and support, but will also learn themselves, you know, how I can be a better mentor, what I can do as a, as a leader. And the mentees themselves, I mean, they're eager to, they're eager to learn. And, you know, if they receive great mentorship, then they sort of pass it on, right? It's a, it's a self-sustaining ecosystem, if you yeah. will. And it's really amazing to watch. You know, the research that I looked at to inform, so the research that I did was around mentorship and women specifically, and what can be done to support women and increasing, you know, the number of women in the CAF. But the work that I've looked at, you know, has used mentorship across all sorts of, I guess, subpopulations within institutions like the military. And it's been quite successful because it's someone who sort of understands where you're coming from and also understands the, the institution itself. So I think with some, you know, structure and guidance and most important organizational support, because you need the resources to be able to do it, you need to be able to give in time and space to, to engage in mentorship. I think it can be quite successful in addressing a lot of these issues, right? And, and sort of gradually make that contribution to, to changing culture because it provides mentorship has provided women in particular with a, a network of support for, you know, women to, to band together, to say, oh, you know, what is happening is not okay. We're going to stand up and voice our concerns with, you know, whatever the issue may be. Women have also found that, you know, it's a great network to share information on how to get support if they've experienced things like military sexual trauma. So, I mean, there's such huge benefits, but we just need the infrastructure within organizations like the military to be able to sustain this sort of thing. Yeah, I guess that's really, really interesting thing is that the military likes to talk a good game about this kind of stuff, about mm -hmm. mentoring, but it may be that either through past behavior or through through the culture of what is a appropriate that it's narrowed their imagination about what mentoring can be or should be. And they, there needs to be better education and understanding of, of where can mentoring go awry versus where it can be most productive. Because it is so essential to all kinds of organizations, particularly an organization where people are in there maybe potentially for their entire working life, yeah. that you need to do a good job of having the right mentoring perspective or values or structures because it's so part of what they do. And it has such long lasting impacts. So I guess that's something that, you know, your research and your work needs to be disseminated more widely within the military to make it more systematic to understand. It's interesting because I saw on Twitter a conversation about mentoring yesterday about how men and women diff seem to have different mentoring networks, whereas men seem to have the big names tend to have cult-like following of, of people, whereas the women mentors tend to create lots more relationships between the mentees. And I don't know how true that was, but it did get me thinking about how there are different styles of mentoring. And I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but I think we need to be a little clear about the benefits and costs of different ways of doing it. I think that uh, Twitter post is actually, it's consistent with the work that I've done and mm -hmm. the, the comments that I've gotten where, you know, when speaking to, to women mentors and they have, you know, a range of, you know, men and women mentees, they did indicate to me that men tend to be very much, they're mentoring conversations, their mentoring goals are very much around the career objectives, career progression. And where for women, it was around how do I negotiate certain relationships? How do I, you know, navigate life and work? And so, it's, I think it's important to have a range of mentors. I mean, not to say that, you know, a woman mentor can't give you advice on, you know, career trajectory, but it, there's definitely a, a different, a different utilization of mentors mm -hmm. uh, between, between men and women. So I don't know what that says. I didn't get a chance to, you know, dig into that, but I mean, I, I you know, that Twitter post really is reflective of what I've seen. Fair. So let's move on to a, a second report that came out, which is the, uh, the military's ombudsman came out with a report calling for the CAF to better accommodate troops with disabled children and other family challenges. That posting season is coming up where people are going to move around a lot, and that places great stress on families. And this too fits in some of the previous work you've done. So I'm curious as to whether you have any thoughts on how, not so much the problem, but how do we deal with this problem? You know, when I saw the article, it was almost like, to me, it was like, of course, like, why, why do we need a report for this? We've been hearing this from military families for as long as I've been in, in this area of work. I mean, part of the onus, and it's nice to see that this report has sort of highlighted the responsibility of the CAF to ensure that work is not prioritized over families, that there needs to be some you know, perspective given on unique family situations and, and that it needs to be accommodated for. You know, the comment around the chain of command often don't, don't even, aren't even aware of what the process is to request a compassionate posting or status. I mean, that definitely needs to change. I mean, that's a low hanging fruit. 
provide people with adequate education information during posting season on how to support their subordinates. I think it's, you know, very easy thing to do. But I also think the onus is on, and speaking as a healthcare provider, on us on healthcare providers in the civilian world to be aware of these struggles. I mean, I've been a part of a number of studies with the, the OT Association, as well as with the Canadian uh, Pedi- Pediatric Society, where we spoke to healthcare providers to say, you know, how much do you know about military families and their ability to, you know, access care? Most people don't realize that military families, you know, access the same healthcare system as you and I that the health services for the military has nothing to do with, with military families. And as a result, when families are posted from you know, one jurisdiction to another, what this article was talking about, but sitting on a wait list and being pulled off, yeah, you know, it happens all the time. You know, I've talked to families where they will travel back because they're sitting on a wait list and like hopefully they will go back when their name comes up. This is such a you know huge demand on families. So I mean I I think the onus is on civilian healthcare providers to you know be aware of this and do what they can to you know maybe put families up higher on the, the wait list, given the fact that they've been waiting for a pediatrician in some other jurisdiction for a number of years. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's uh, I'm glad it's been highlighted and identified by the ombudsman in the military, that this is a, a real challenge for military families. But I also think it's on us as healthcare providers to realize this is an issue and do what we can within provincial healthcare systems, within our, our practices to be able to help these families. I think This issue, like others, reminds us that the military's had traditions and procedures for decades, and people just simply haven't been thinking systematically about the consequences of the choices we make. You know, know, some pro-family things have military impact. Posting season is in the summer because the idea is it allows families to move so that way school years aren't interrupted for the kids. Well, in Afghanistan, fighting season was in the summer, and swapping in and out military units in the middle of fighting season might not have made the best sense. So we can think about it in both directions. But I do think that we need to think more about this because we have, for instance, more double income families in the military, right? Where either one partner is is outside the military, but is making an income and the moving around is disruptive to their career, or they are also in the military. Then you have to think about how to sequence the posting for both partners to make sure that that disruption is minimal and both can have successful careers. But the day of having people join the military and their families just have to suck it up, whatever happens, that those days are gone. Recruitment is hard enough. Retention is hard enough. And so the, this fits into the larger recruitment and retention piece, which is if we don't get posting season right, if we don't figure out ways to minimize the family disturbances, the shocks on families of however the, the military lifestyle is, then we're going to c- continue to bleed people who who want to stay in the military, but they can't handle it for the sake of their family. And I've heard of women and I've interviewed women who have, have had very crappy careers in the military, but have left because of childcare. And we go into the whole, you know, gender roles in the family and, and whatnot. But I mean, it's just, you know, you want to keep good people, then, you know, make the system as amenable as possible. Uh, having information around requests for compassionate posting is as readily available and transparent, right? So trying to change the institution. And these are, you know, I, I don't know whether or not they're big ass. They don't seem like big ass. Yeah, I think it, they're. Am I, na- am I naive? I'm naive. <laughs> no, I th- I don't think you're naive. I think, I think that asks vary, and some things are, as you put it, low hanging fruit, and some things are hard. And the question is, is which aspects or which problems cause the greatest amount of harm and mm-hmm. and hurt recruitment and retention the most? Start there and then work your way down, because we have a recruitment crisis. We're down whether it's 7,000 or 10,000 troops, we're, we're down a, a large number of people. And so we got to figure out what are the things that have the biggest bang for the buck in terms of changing how families interact with the military. And then once we get those done, then we can think about smaller things. So I, I think we need to figure out what are the, what's the most damaging aspects of, of this kind of part of the lifestyle and then move from there. And again, like I'm just going to go back, it's also on us as a you know, the health system and healthcare providers to be able to, you know, support military families when they are making the move. The military as an organization isn't able to budge a lot to accommodate families. You know, we also need to do our part as civilian institutions and organizations to be able to support them. And that's one of the big bees in my bonnet over the past few years is just like the lack of general knowledge among healthcare providers. Yeah, I think I think you're onto something there. I want to thank you for your time today, Lena. Thank you for having me, Steve. Pleasure talking to you. We could have talked about all these things much longer. Your expertise on these matters is, is, is terrific. The next segment is with Lieutenant Colonel Melanie Lake. She commanded Operation Unifier in Ukraine last year, so she has much to say about 
the training that the Canadians performed with the Ukrainians and what that means for the war effort and what that means for future training efforts. Today, we're talking briefly with Safia Hafid about her Young Minds grant-sponsored event, The New Bipolarity. When I was uh, I applied for the grant, I decided to do it on you know, the how Canada fits into the U.S. channel rivalry because I felt like that was a very pressing issue in international affairs. I decided to, you know, create a virtual conference to bring people from different backgrounds to share their expertise on this subject. So what are the big themes of the conference? So I decided to focus on three panels for this conference. First panel will be the decline of American hegemony. Mm -hmm. The second will be China's current foreign policy tactics. And the third will be Canadian policy options in the aftermath of the AUKUS agreement. Thankfully, a lot of really great people agreed to speak at the conference. For panel one, we have Dr. Elizabeth Fernlaris from the University of Mary Washington. We have Dr. Robert Murray from Denton's Government Affairs and Public Policy Group. We have Thomas J. Christensen from Columbia University. For panel two, we have uh, Dr. David Welch from University of Waterloo. We have Dr. Lynette Ong from the University of Toronto. And for panel three, we have Dr. Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University and Don Newman from Rubicon Strategy. Excellent. Uh, it sounds like a really interesting group of people focusing on the decline of the United States, on the rise of China and its belligerent foreign policies, and then what Canada can do about it. What time is this taking place and how can people access it? So the conference will take place on Thursday, May 12th, and it will begin at 1. You can find it on the CDSN YouTube channel. And panel 1 will begin at 1. Panel two will begin at 2.15, and panel three will begin at 3.30. We hope to see you there. Excellent. And for more information, people can go to the CDSN webpage, and they can uh, look for the new popularity or look for Sophia's name, or look for the UES, the Undergraduate Excellent Scholar. It's been a pleasure having you working with uh, CDSN over this past year, and we look forward to actually seeing this fall at NIPSIA, and I'm looking forward to the event on, on Thursday. So thanks for everything you've done for us and have a great summer. Today we're talking with Lieutenant Colonel Melody Lake. She commanded Operation Unifier in Ukraine not that long ago, so thought we'd get her perspective on the events of the past couple of months. So welcome to Battle of the Lieutenant Colonel Lake. Hi, thank you for having me. So the first thing is when we talk about training, you know, the, the image that comes to mind, and it's a very dated image, when we think of army training, I think of Bill Murray and Stripes. And what is army training? Can you tell us a little bit about what the Canadian Armed Forces were doing in Ukraine to, to train the Ukrainian military? Yeah, certainly. So Canada has been providing training, building partner capacity training in Ukraine since 2015. So on average, we, we had about 200 people on the ground and the mission evolved over the years. So we started off with very direct training in 2015, working with battalions and companies and teaching weapons drills and directly training engineer skills, a little bit of logistics. But over the years, as they improved and formed at a rapid rate that gradually expanded and we had to reform our training mission to keep pace or I guess evolve. By the time I left in October of 2021, we were really focused on three areas. So getting into the professional military education institutes, both on the officer and non-commissioned officer side, teaching leadership and teaching how NATO plans. So military decision-making process, that's actually an American version of it, but it's what Ukraine has adopted leadership and, and really that mindset when it comes to planning and mission command. Then individual training, so building certain combat capacities, be it sniper programs, recce programs, engineers, artillery, medical. And then the final element is a continuation of where we started, but focused on collective training, combined arms training. And we originally started at CTC Yagarev in the west of the country near the Polish border alongside the Americans. Their training mission, but we ended up shifting our main focus for collective training to the south near Mikolaev at CTC Shiroki mm. land and, and took the lead there in developing that combat training center so they could get more brigades through. And all of these brigade training exercises, you know, they would start from section level, working all the way up to brigade live fire events in defense and offense, but it would also be an opportunity to train battalion and brigade headquarters staff on those same NATO planning processes 
processes that we were teaching in the professional military education facilities. So that was kind of the tactical component of the mission. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, there was the strategic level component under ADM policy that was focused on security sector reform, really helping with the transition to civilian democratic control of the military, reform of the command and control structure, helping reform the general staff and working directly with the Ministry of Defense embedded in some of those broader security sector reform projects going through the RADA. So it was it was quite comprehensive. Well, that's really interesting because we've heard a lot more about the lower level stuff and not the higher level stuff. And as someone who teaches and writes about civil military relations, I'm, I'm quite struck by the fact that we were doing some of the, the training on the, on the civil military relations end of things. Some of the stuff we've heard about has been how much the Ukrainians have changed how they run their military because they used to have you know, generals run their Ministry of Defense, and now they have civilians. And my bias is that's a, that's a good thing. And I think that's pretty much true with the tendency across NATO. So I guess the question then is, is now that you've been watching them in action uh, for the past couple months, can you see specific spots where you go, aha, that's, they got what we were teaching, or they're doing it better than we are? Or, you know, can you see the effects of the training? Yeah, there's, I mean, there certainly is a lot. And it's both. It's, wow, I can see where what we did is being put into action, but also, wow, look at how they've taken and gone above and beyond, or this is an area where we can really learn from them. And that was actually the great thing about the mission. Like it was full on a partnership. We were learning mm -hmm. as much from them as they were from us. And it actually became a very deliberate component of the mission to treat it as, as a battle lab where we learn and deliberately bring home those lessons that they were sharing with us from their war in the Donbass for the last seven years. They were very you know, gracious with sharing that. And we both came away more ready. But when we talk about the things that are really having an impact, I I think it is that transition in mindset from the old Soviet style decision making and planning structure where everything is very, it's very centralized control and generals are making decisions and officers, but there isn't that empowerment at the lower ranks of your junior leaders who are so critical if you want a fast paced battle and you want to outthink and outact your enemy. So seeing them embrace mission command and empowering their junior leaders and particularly their senior NCO core, senior non-commissioned members, like that mm -hmm. was a really signature effort of Operation Unifier, the Canadian mission. And something that we were you know, truly proud of is watching how these senior NCOs, they were leading their training institutions and they were ready for this moment where they would be asked to step up and empowered. So those are the areas I'm seeing, the embrace of mission command and the empowerment of junior leaders and that professional NCO core are truly having a difference. Some of the things that I think we brought home goes back to some of the key battlefield discipline that, you know, those hard lessons that they learned in blood. So the importance of camouflage and concealment and dispersion and survivability, understanding that there's always that threat from above. Their wide scale use of, of UAVs, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated military grade UAVs, that small commercial drones, how valuable mm. those are and mm. how far along they've come in counter drone and integration of electronic warfare and seeing, you know, the role that their snipers are playing. That's another area where, you know, we had a, a great relationship developing sniper programs within the army and the national guard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just as an example of all of those things being combined, you know, we saw multiple examples of Russian generals being taken out at the front by snipers or by reconnaissance forces. They don't embrace mission command. There's no decentralized control and decision-making. So when things got bogged down, those generals are coming way too far forward, trying to unblock things and they're getting picked off. So it's a, it's a remarkable example, I think of the contrast. Excellent. And I, that was one, something that we, I think we didn't really appreciate is that Ukraine has been at war since 2014. We tend to think the Russians snatched Crimea and then there was this thing going on in Donbass with separatists. And that was, you know, that wasn't really a war, but what we're coming to appreciate now is, is the Ukrainians have been at war for eight years. And, and so I guess that, that speaks to a question I've had, which is one of the challenges and critiques of training over the years has been, we do a lot of training, but is there a lot of uptake? And it seems to be in this case, the Ukrainians really did take, you know, take to the training and, and have applied it really well. And I guess one of the questions I have for you is given what you knew about training before you arrived, and what you what you experienced while you were there, what made the Ukrainians better students 
then perhaps other folks that we've trained, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, other places in the world. It, was it just the urgency of, of being at war with the Russians, or is it something else that made Canadian-Ukrainian interactions more compatible than in other places? I think it was the embracement of the need for reform all the way from the top. So you had political will, you had mm. a sense of urgency from the war in the East, and you had very willing partners who, you know, who did want to reform. And, and there was a lot of, you know, there was the top down push, but mm -hmm. there was also that bottom up driving from the junior leaders who just wanted to, to learn and absorb and help their force reform. So there was absolute commitment and, you know, where resistance was met, changes were made when they needed to be made. Yeah. I remember after the, the Russian buildup in the spring last year, the commander in chief made it very clear that there is no space in leadership positions in their military for people who don't want to reform, who mm -hmm. aren't on board with this. So it's, it's no small undertaking what they've done. I mean, their military was very much in tatters in 2014. And that decision paralysis that stems from this culture of not empowering people to make decisions and to have confidence that, that they're allowed to do that, mm -hmm. that was something that Russia was able to capitalize on in 2014. So they committed hard to reform and they have, you know, they have extensively reformed their, their whole security sector, rebuilt and rearmed, re-equipped, retrained their military fundamentally, like from rewriting all of their joint doctrine all the way down to the techniques and procedures that small combat formations are using. And they've done that in the last eight years while they're fighting a war. It's an incredible accomplishment. And having seen where they were at firsthand, I mean, I, I did not share the doubts that many people had before this invasion of how they would perform and how they would defend with such fierce determination. One, because they're experienced in it. I mean, they have been defending for eight years and all of their leadership who are making decisions at the top right now are people who were brigade commanders in 2014 or battalion commanders and have gone up through all of these levels and proven themselves in combat and are experienced. So there's a lot coming together into this success. And I guess when I look at this, you were there, you know, in the fall and winter where the threat was very present that, you know, from 2014, 2018, 19, you know, maybe there's not going to be Russian invasion, whatever, but Putin had been, you know, making what has happened the past one month seem inevitable for, you know, since last fall. And so I guess in your interactions, you could see that the, the people you're interacting with were thinking about not just we need to fight better than Donbass, but we are going to be facing an invasion. And they were planning for it. I mean, is that, was that something that you could really observe that it wasn't just a hypothetical of, oh, maybe someday the Russians are going to invade, but this is inevitable. We're going to face this invasion soon. We have to be ready for it. Was that sort of a sense that you had? It was very real, very obvious, very in your face. So about a week after we deployed in March of 2021, I came down with COVID. I was isolating and I got woken up in the middle of the night by my team. They're like, you have to come in. I'm like, I can't go anywhere. I'm a biohazard, but uh, <laughs> you, know, you really, you really have to come in. And it was at that moment that European command had changed their assessment on the threat level as Russia was building up on the border to, you know, potentially an imminent threat. So we watched this for a month. We watched this build up. The intentions were uncertain at that time. Mm -hmm. We were watching carefully for, you know, what would distinguish this from a training exercise as they were describing it, as they were pushing BTGs into Crimea and mm -hmm. into Belgorod area. So we were looking for what was distinguishable between an exercise and actually the onset of potential combat operations. So from the very, pretty much from the day we arrived, this threat was very real, very prevalent. And it drove home to our people who were coming to deliver training, the seriousness of what we were doing, like the understanding that this is a threat that they are living with every day. And it's very real, very prevalent. And with that, so, you know, Ukraine was certainly, you know, intimately aware of the threat and remarkably stoic actually in their response. Like they just, as this buildup was happening in the spring, they refused to provoke. They refused to do anything that would give Russia the cause that they required to launch. But that doesn't mean that they were unprepared and weren't working these scenarios in the background. We had the privilege of sitting in on the strategic seminar of the general staff, and they they talked through the reforms to their C2 system that they were implementing to be able to 
facilitate the same sort of mobilization of society, the mobilization of these territorial defense forces that we're seeing put into action now. And in September, they they have an exercise where they practice this. It's called Joint Endeavor. And for the first time this year, they allowed their foreign partners to come in and participate and mentor and, and observe. You know, they did a real-time practice in September of how they activate their national defense plan and what it means and what needs to be improved. And I imagine that certainly carried on the sort of after action reviews on that well after I left and refining, yeah, the C2 structure to activate these territorial brigades and how they would be trained and equipped. They were working all this because they understood that this threat was so real. And you speak of C2, which is command and control. And I guess one of the things that surprised outside observers is that the Russians this time around weren't able to really interfere in the ability for the Ukrainians to exercise command, that we were expecting cyber attacks and disinformation and jamming. And, and I don't know if the Russians aren't doing that or just the Ukrainians got very good at resisting that. Is see, Can you help us figure that out a little bit? Yeah, that, that piece was surprising, to be honest, because when I was talking back to what we were looking for in the spring as we were trying to, you know, distinguish the difference. One of the first things that we anticipated that would give us a signal would be, you know, those comms disruptions and expecting that to be a very early phase of a potential Russian invasion. And and we truly have not seen the disruption of Ukrainian comms and command and control to the same extent that we would have anticipated. But I also think, you know, the fact that they are operating in a mission command, embracing mission command, helps them be ready for that. Even if that happened, you know, people farther down understand the intent of what they're trying to achieve. So they're still going to act even in the absence of direct orders. The other piece to it that we're seeing on the Russian side is just a complete lack of discipline on the communications front, you know, widely using unencrypted communication, using cell phones. I mean, everybody is hearing the transcripts of what they're saying. So not only are they failing to disrupt Ukrainian comms, but they're wildly failing to protect their own communication. And they also came in with a very, you know, when you talk about the command and control, without a unified command for the theater. So you had four different prongs to the attack that weren't being centrally coordinated, no sort of mutual support and reinforcement in between, and just a total lack of coordination. So that piece was was truly surprising. And I think they're attempting to rectify at least the, the command and control piece by instituting a centralized commander now and, and pulling back into a, a less wide front, but like these really struck me as amateur mistakes. Mm. Well, and, and that speaks to something else that I've been curious about, which is you can improve command and control, but that doesn't mean your commanders are smart, right? You can have really good command and control, but they're making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And one of the striking things about this war has been how the Ukrainians seem to have made the right decisions along the way, which is they didn't you know, try to stop the Russians in mass battles at the front. They sort of let the Russians get strung out and then then attack them from behind. You didn't have large mass tank battles where the Russians could deploy their artillery and tanks to destroy the Ukrainian tanks. We, we don't really know how bad of a price the Ukrainians have paid for the this conflict. They've been much more careful about showing videos of, of Ukrainian equipment being destroyed as opposed to the videos of, of uh, Russian equipment being destroyed. But it seems to me that they were very very clever. I don't want to say that we thought that they were stupid ahead of time. It's just that every military can be led by smart people or by people who are not so smart. And it just seems that their strategy for facing a Russian invasion, which obviously I had a lot of time to think about, but it doesn't mean that you, when you think about something that you always make the right call. They seem to have made the right call on this. And I'm, I'm curious, is that something you were expecting that this is what the way it would play out in terms of at least the, the Ukrainian strategy? Or is this something that you're like, wow, they didn't try to save every every inch of territory. They they played for time and they so how this played out, was that a kind of a surprise to you in terms of at least on the Ukrainian strategy side? I mean the Russian strategy side, on the other hand, nobody could have guessed that they would be this incompetent. First to address your point about leadership. There was a huge changeover in the leadership of the Ukrainian armed forces in the August and early September timeframe. It felt a little bit like Game of Thrones sitting there <laughs> watching this unfold. Like every day there was a, a new announcement. But 
I come back to the fact that I think they really got it right. They got the right leaders in the right places at the right time who are making the right decisions now in this fight. And this is, this is those people that I mentioned, you know, these leaders who were brigade commanders or company commanders or battalion commanders in 2014 and have now worked mm -hmm. their way up through commanding at every different level and getting that combat experience. General Zeluzhny, who was named the commander-in-chief, he is he's the first commander-in-chief that they had who has never trained in Russia, who... who <laughs> I think I saw an accident. <laughs> all of the training in Ukraine and like there was there was excitement amongst the force when he was named as the commander in chief and they plucked him from two ranks down he was a major general he was commanding operational command north and they chose him as the commander in chief and yeah like people were excited about this mm -hmm. like he was combat proven he was you know well regarded from the early days of the fighting but also known as someone who empowers who takes the risk to empower his junior leaders so that's who you have you know, commanding this battle. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, coming in behind him in OC North, you've got Major General Nikoluk, who also had distinguished himself as a hero of Ukraine from the early days in 2014. And we worked closely with him. He used to command the school in Desna, where we ran sniper training and medical training, as well as NCO training. And like, visiting there, his sergeant major had taken us around the base for a tour and he showed us where General Nikoluk lived. He lived on the first floor mm. of you know, a very unluxurious apartment building where all of the sergeants lived. He lived with the NCOs. So he's mm. the one in charge now of the battle in Chernihiv. And you could just feel the respect that people had for him. Same thing down in the South, General Kovalchuk. Like I could go on, but it's about, you know, one of the huge things I think is having the right leaders in the right place, making good decisions. They have done an outstanding job of capitalizing on vulnerabilities that the Russians have exposed en masse when you talked about it. Like, sure, they may have more tanks, but they picked a terrible time of year to come into Ukraine. The ground is soft. They're, you can't shake out your tank formations right now and capitalize on that open terrain. You're confined to the roads. And even if your tanks get through, tanks don't go very far without resupply of fuel. And those logistics vehicles are proving incredibly vulnerable. And Ukraine is capitalizing on it. And you're seeing, you know, the countryside littered with vehicles that have run out of fuel and been abandoned or attacked. Like they are, they are doing a masterful job of capitalizing on those vulnerabilities that are coming from both the ground, the terrain, Russian errors, but also their own ability to decentralize and have small teams taking initiative with the weapons that are flowing in, like the anti-tank weapons and the anti-aircraft missiles and innovative use of drones to direct precision fire. Like they are doing things right and they are playing it smart. They aren't launching you know, foolhardy counterattacks that see their own folks slaughtered. They are picking their battles at the right time and right place to play to their strengths. So mm -hmm. And that good decision-making comes from the top, but it also yeah. comes from empowering the people who are on the ground, who have the best view to make those decisions and can make them timely. Well, and, and that speaks to something really striking, which is promoting the right people is not an easy thing. And, you know, and there are other countervailing forces that can lead to other people being promoted, whether they're people who are good at what I would call, what a lot of people call kissing up and kicking down. So they look good to the superiors, but aren't necessarily good leaders. The United States has had a few of those over the past uh, 20 years that have, you know, looked good, but not have performed well. And so that that's a really striking thing is that the Ukrainians got this right. And part of it is the crucible war, which is you start to figure out, okay, we just can't promote the people that we like. We have to promote the people who are effective. But the other thing is the people who are effective at one level often are not so effective at the next levels. So they've really picked up folks who are not only good at an operational commander or, or you know, battalion commander, but are very good at commanding larger and larger units. And, and so that's, that's really striking. It shouldn't portray, you know, that it's all rosy no. on that front. No, I mean, the HR, HR reforms is a huge piece that, you know, needed to be taken on that, mm. that sort of transparency and selection and process and career management. That was an area where everybody identified there was a need for reform, but it's such a huge beast when you have such a sizable army. It was something that we had identified, but hadn't really, mm. you know, fully gotten through, but you're right. Like at that highest level, they did get those decisions right. And so you're an army officer. Today is April 14th, which means it's the day after the Ukrainians 
sank or at least did a lot of damage to the Moskva, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. I take it that we have not done much Navy training or Air Force training in for the Ukrainians? We've done a little bit. In the early days, there was a line of training on the Air Force side for flight safety. I'm not sure how far along we got with that. On the naval side, we've done incremental training, like brought in brought in what we call TAVs, temporary assistance visits, to participate either in training with the Naval Academy on last year, we had groups come and teach tactical navigation and naval di- ship diving, because actually their naval capacity was significantly reduced because so much of their naval assets were in Crimea and Sebastopol that a lot of this is being rebuilt. So it's an area, you know, where there's a lot of need, but Operation Orbital, the UK mission, amongst our our broader community of training missions had the lead on on naval training. We did participate multiple years in Exercise Seabreeze in July every year. That was a joint US-Ukraine exercise in the Black Sea. So this year we had staff, staff officers, divers, boarding parties, things like that. But, you know, it was incremental training. Like when needs were identified, teams would come in, deliver Mm -hmm. training, pull back. You never had them uh, talk to the Ukrainians about, okay, never sail your ships with a missile range of land. Like the Russians apparently didn't get that training. So I guess given their experience both before, you know, for eight years and going on now, we now have made a commitment to continue the training once, I guess, the war settles down, right? The the prime minister and the defense minister said Operation Unifier will continue. What do we have to train them? I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're a very capable force. What is the training going to look like after this war? Because they'll have a lot more to teach us than will we have anything left to teach them? Yeah, I mean, this will change everything. And I certainly can't speak to, you know, what the government policy will be, but Mm -hmm. needs after the day after a conflict ends, sorry, the day after a war ends, words Mm -hmm. matter, they're different. And there's going to be a ton of work required to, you know, to help with the rebuilding process and to help remove all of the, the, the tremendous impacts and remnants of war, be it, you know, explosive remnants of war, things like that. So who knows what the mission will look like, Mm -hmm. but there will be no shortage of work to be done. And with the renewal of that commitment, I'm certain we'll be able to find meaningful ways to contribute. And no doubt we will learn a hell of a lot uh, Mm -hmm. as we work side by side with our Ukrainian counterparts right now, because I mean, there's no one who can teach what it means to fight the Russians better than they are. I mean, we have to acknowledge they are the experts in that right now. they're showing their capabilities. So I would love to have the opportunity to learn more from them. We learned so much while we were there already. Mm-hmm. And they're so willing and proud to share that, that I think that tremendous opportunity for partnership continues. So we might see Ukrainian versions of Unifier where they come to Canada and train the Canadian armed forces on how to fight 21st century warfare. The best missions are always where you both learn, where you mm-hmm. both benefit, and you both get better. What is your current job? What are you doing yeah. now for the Canadian Forces, besides yeah, right talking about the mission that you yeah. just did? Right now, I'm the commanding officer for two combat engineer regiment in, mm. uh, in Petawawa, Ontario. So we're in what we call our build year right now. So mm. doing our workup training and come July 1st, uh, we move into contingency year, which means we're we're on the hook to respond if the government calls for anything unforeseen. So we are very focused right now on getting ready mm-hmm. and watching the situation and understanding the threat and the way the adversary is fighting so that we are better prepared to respond. Sure, that leads to two questions then. One is, as an engineer, what is your engineering perspective on this war about how the the battle between Ukrainian and Russian engineers in this? Uh, we've heard about flooding of territory. We've seen bridges blown up. What is your take on on sort of the, the battle among engineers? And, and of course, since you're an engineer, how m- much more important this is than the other aspects of the armies at uh, work? So uh, again, this is an area where I've been surprised because we often heard of how much Russia prioritizes its engineers and have very robust assets and, and tend to push engineers forward with all of their forward elements to make sure they don't lose momentum. And we simply haven't seen it. We haven't seen the commitment of engineer forces at the level that we'd expect. And I, I think, you know, that that does play a role in the stalled advances that we saw. They certainly haven't played to their engineer strengths, you know, looking at trying to break into some of the urban centers. There has been a, a very distinct lack of visible engineers 
forward. Ukraine's been doing a good job of countering it. I mean, taking out some of their pontoon bridging sites in the north. And we're also seeing, you know, Russia very amateur in the way that they're employing landmines, like surface laid on asphalt, which is <laughs> not all that effective. But the other piece we're seeing is the indiscriminate use of things like cluster munitions and booby traps in area and, and mines, including anti-personnel mines in areas as they pull back. And they're leaving a hell of a mess for the civilian population. I mean, this is, this is the truly ugly side of combat. And that's the sort of thing that will impact civilians for years and years to come. And, and when you talk about, you know, the what will we do after this conflict, like that just points to you know, some of the areas where the need will be huge. Yeah, I had somebody reach out to me and suggest that what we need in Ukraine is to put in some PRTs where we could help them rebuild and demine and do that kind of thing. We have much practice helping demining in Bosnia and, and Afghanistan and other places that we've been. And, and so I'm sure the Ukrainians have much experience themselves, but it, that's a, it's an effort that's require a lot of work, even if the Russians weren't so careless about it and so malicious about it. But given that they have been, it's going to be an overwhelming task uh, to make the land arable again and the, the, the towns and cities livable again. And that's a piece that I hope, you know, a lot of us are thinking about and preparing for, because I mean, they are completely consumed fighting this war, but we, from the luxury of our of our safe havens and our safe countries, we need to be thinking about that day after this war ends, mm -hmm. be ready to assist. And your discussion of working on contingencies and, and being you're having your, your troops ready for the next thing, I want to switch gears a little bit. General Ayer, before he became chief of, of uh, the defense for, uh, staff, was chief of the army, and he talked about the increased pace of domestic operations. As an engineer, I assume that you are thinking about and preparing for that next emergency. Where are you based in Canada? Uh, Petawawa, Ontario, about okay, an hour sure. north of Ottawa. Yeah, I always lose track of which divisions were. And so I assume that you and your troops are thinking about the floods and fires and the other emergencies that are taking place. How do you prepare for that stuff, knowing that it's going to happen at some point, at some place, but not knowing when and where, uh, while still doing the rest of the training for the the foreign game? How do you how do you manage the the domestic game and the and the internet and the expeditionary game at the same time? So, I mean, our first responsibility is Defense of Canada, and that means responding to domestic incidents if called. We maintain a continuous standby force called our immediate response force that is always on call for domestic emergencies. For us as engineers within my brigade, you know, there's a lead element that goes out and there's a follow-on force. And then always on standby is a composite squadron from my unit that will task tailor depending on the emergency. We've had a lot of practice over the last few years with more and more call-outs. And, and we really try to be deliberate about capturing what we learn from in each of those mm -hmm. responses, be it floods, fires, or, you know, over the last couple of years with COVID of making sure that our equipment and our people are ready. So we we, I mean, we train for this. We do immediate response force call outs to test and confirm our readiness. And yeah, we're just, we talk about it. We, we drill it and we try to learn each time we do this, how to be better prepared. There is always, I mean, it is always a balancing act though. You know, we're heading into flood season in Ontario right now, just as the majority of our brigade is going out to Wainwright, Alberta for our high readiness exercise, uh, Maple Resolve. That's really our, our signature training event when it comes to expeditionary readiness. So it's always a balance. And we know our first job is to respond here in Canada. So the contingencies are in place if we need to redirect our efforts. Great. Well, I don't want to take more of your time because I know you have other contingencies to plan for besides talking on podcasts. I want to thank you for your time, Lieutenant Colonel Lake. Thank you for everything that you've done. Definitely the Ukrainians have shown that they can take training and run with it. It shows that the training efforts we've done around the world, sometimes they work out better than others, but we could see that in, in Ukraine that whatever contribution we made has been utilized to its greatest extent. And so we could take some pride, although obviously all the all the kudos really go to the Ukrainians for, for performing yeah. under under great stress and fire. We're just happy we could be there, you know, to help in any way to get them ready for this day. And and that's what, you know, I told our team the day after this erupted, like, do feel proud that you were there. Do feel proud that you contributed. Certainly, you know, we're not looking to take credit for this. You can't teach courage. That is all coming from them. <laughs> 
but we're happy that we were able to be there and help get ready for this day that we hoped would never come, but mm -hmm. here we are. Thank you again for, for speaking with us today on Battle River. Thank you. Have a great day. On today's R&R segment, we have three things on the streaming services. We have on Disney Plus Moon Knight. I'm surprised I hadn't mentioned it before. It, it just finished its run. So you got six episodes to watch of a lesser known superhero who has disassociative identity disorder, which means that a lot of the conversations take place between two different personalities of the lead character played by Oscar Isaac. And I was just talking to Lena about it. And as a psychologist, she, she felt that they did a good job of dealing with that. And it was very entertaining. It takes place in different environments than we're used to seeing from Marvel movies. And it takes place within Egyptian mythology, which is not something that, that many of us are very familiar with. So I thought that was a nice change of pace. I'm very much looking forward to Kids in the Hall. I, I was exposed to Kids in the Hall long before I came to Canada and became addicted to, to those wacky kids. And I used to use uh, at least one of their sketches in my classes. And uh, they're coming up with new stuff starting this week on Amazon. So I recommend that. Finally, on Netflix, there's Metal Lords. Metal Lords is a movie about three teenagers who are really into metal. Well, two are really into heavy metal and a third becomes into heavy metal. It's very entertaining. It's, it's not terribly innovative in terms of the usual teen movie structure, but it's delightful. It, it's silly. It's entertaining. It's engaging. It's, it's moving. The, the, the stars are, 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 are very endearing. So Metal Lords on Netflix, Kids of the Hall on Amazon, and Moon Knight on Disney+. Plus. Uh, those are my recommendations for this week as I get ready to go see Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. Be well.